Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. This week on Sound Medicine, a lot of doctors thought the vaccine controversy had been settled. Not so much. I think we're at risk of sliding backwards, significantly sliding backwards. Plus, helping kids get caught up in school after a concussion. Our goal is to get them back to where they were academically before the brain injury. How childhood trauma can physically affect the brain. Feeling agitated feeling helpless and feeling heartache. It's a very physical, sensate experience. And two updates. How fighting brain cancer has created an interesting family question. The answer's already there. It's just whether you want to open the envelope and find out. And we wrap up our story of a father and his injured daughter. I don't know what will happen or how to help. I do not say it'll be all right. That's all coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. The news about measles has been everywhere this week, obsessing not just the medical and scientific community, but also national politics. Accusations have been flying. Parents have been calling each other names. It is not a debate just about health anymore. But this is an evidence-based program, so we're going to stick to the facts today and leave the vitriol and gotcha moments to others. Later, we'll be speaking with a lawyer and public health expert about the process of granting vaccination exemptions to some families. But let's begin with Dr. David Kimberlin. He's a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and he's the president of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society. Welcome to Sound Medicine. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. To begin this discussion, just how easy is it to catch measles and why? It's extremely easy to catch measles. Uh, It's one of the two or maybe three most infectious agents that humans can get. Any one person who has measles is likely to spread it to about 20 other people. When somebody has measles and they cough and it kind of gets out there in the air, it can hang suspended in the air for up to two hours, which means that if someone has measles in a room, coughs, leaves the measles behind, leaves the room, then someone over the next hour or two going into that room who is susceptible to measles, who's not had the vaccine or had measles itself, can acquire the infection very, very easily. So is it just simply coughing then that is the main means of transmission or are there other ways? It's mostly the secretions and coughing gets the secretions out into the into the air around the person. Okay, for two hours. That, that's a, a long shelf life, as they say. It is, and especially when you consider that the person who had measles in that scenario to begin with is long gone. They're no longer in the waiting room in the doctor's offices. They're no longer in the airport terminal in a major city's airport. And when are they the most contagious? They're most contagious both before they come down with symptoms and during the time that they have symptoms. So unlike something like Ebola, where you're not contagious until you start having symptoms from the disease itself, measles can actually have likelihood of spread even before the symptoms occur. 
so the reason we're having these problems now is uh, that most parents protect their children by getting them fully immunized. But increasingly, some parents decide not to. And it's not just the likelihood of what that percentage of parents who are not getting the vaccines for their children is across a large group. We're finding that it's small pockets of vaccine refusers in a given community can be relatively high, that the likelihood of not having immunizations in one particular neighborhood, for instance, can be pretty high. And when you get a, a disease that's as infectious as measles, it can find those susceptible people. It, it, it can winnow its way through a population and find exactly who is most at risk of acquiring measles, which is the people who should have gotten the vaccine to begin with. Now, it also can find people who are not able to get the vaccine, children who are under a year of age that are at risk of death from measles. They're at risk of permanent brain damage from measles. People with cancer, children with cancer who can't get the vaccine because their immune system is too weak, they're at the mercy of other parents doing the right things by other children so that measles does not get a foothold in a community and ultimately get spread to the weakest and the most vulnerable among us. So, Dr. Kimberlin, are these incidents due solely to the anti-vaccine movement? I mean, are there any other factors involved? Yes, it is related directly to people who choose not to get vaccinated. Now, you do have to have introduction of the virus, in this case, into a community. So there is the outside additional issue of other places in the world where measles has not been eliminated. In, in Europe, for instance, there have been a lot of folks that have turned their back on vaccines, including the measles vaccine. And what happened? Well, it's inevitable. The virus comes back. So France is having a huge measles outbreak. Switzerland has measles. Other Western European countries continue to see measles because people aren't having high enough vaccination rates. I want to get back to vaccinations, but I, I do have to ask you about just treatments. I mean, we have more measles. Um, do doctors now have any new antiviral drugs or other tools to treat it that we didn't have in the pre-vaccine era? No, there is no specific antiviral that treats measles. There's not any, in, even in the pipeline, that I'm aware of with any pharmaceutical companies around the world. The data are not terribly strong here, but we know that uh, if you have a child who is deficient in vitamin A uh, and they get measles, they can have a more severe disease. And so recommendations from the World Health Organization that are embraced as well by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American Academy of Pediatrics would have us give vitamin A to a child who has measles. But that's not a treatment of the disease itself. That's just basically trying to shore up the body so it's less severely affected by this virus. You know, in the pre-vaccine era, 500 children a year in the United States died from measles, and, and many more were left permanently brain damaged from it. Uh, a lot got horrible pneumonia with it. Um, it, it is a, a, an incredibly severe infection that can be prevented. It can be prevented with safe and effective vaccination. And I think the fear is that we're heading towards that era again. How quickly are things going bad here in, in the United States in terms of um, measles outbreaks? Well, I, I think we're at risk of sliding backwards, significantly sliding backwards. If measles regains a foothold, then it's the people who can't get vaccinated, the babies that are under a year of age and whom the, the vaccine doesn't work as well, who are at risk of dying. It's the, it's the children with cancer. They're going through enough. They don't need to have measles layered on top of that. They're, they're battling leukemia or, or, or liver cancer or whatever it may be. 
So I guess there's a lot of us who are baby boomers um, and just don't have a clue. I mean, we're guessing. I, I'm thinking I'm, I'm sure I probably had measles or I probably had a vaccine. I, I just don't remember. I mean, what, what do you advise for adults who want to make sure that they're protected and are protecting others? It's a great question, and, and there's a couple of ways to answer it, I think. First, if you're born before 1957, it's virtually guaranteed that you had measles. So the CDC, and for that matter, the American Academy of Pediatrics, will view a person born before 1957 as being measles immune. Um, and then after that, if you're born after 1957 and you're simply not sure about your status, but say you've got grandchildren and, and, and you want to do everything you can to protect your grandchild, which I fully support and applaud, um, there's no harm in getting a, a measles vaccine, even if you've already had them or if you already had measles. Measles is bad. Measles kills. Measles maims. But it doesn't have to be that way because we have a safe and an effective vaccine that can prevent measles. We need for everyone to get it who is eligible to get it. And if we have high enough vaccination rates, if more people do that, then the inevitable importations that occur because it's in other parts of the world will not find the fertile ground or the or the dry leaves if you will that the spark lights and then it won't spread from person to person here in this country but everyone has to do their part Dr. David Kimberlin thank you so much for talking with me on Sound Medicine thank you for having me Dr. David Kimberlin is president of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society and a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. The cow got the measles and gave spotted cheese. We cut off the green spots to feed to the bees. The old copper kettle was home on the range. The cow got the measles and everything changed. The forward end of the driveway is leaking. We turn now to the exemptions that are granted to parents who, for any number of reasons, decide they don't want to have their children vaccinated. Now, these families have really come under withering criticism this week for leaving babies and people who can't be vaccinated for health reasons more vulnerable to the spread of the measles virus. Ross Silverman is an attorney and professor of health policy and management at the Fairbanks School of Public Health in Indianapolis. His concern, in part, is the tone of the current debate. A lot of the discussion that's going on right now is very hostile. It's very stigmatizing. And the best data that we have and the best studies that we have show that that doesn't work in this circumstance. It doesn't change minds. It doesn't move people from one set of beliefs to another. And so figuring out better ways to do health communication and communicate about the benefits of public health measures I think is, is an area that I'm really interested in. What are the kinds of measures we can take that are going to ensure that people understand that we hear their concerns and at the same time we're also going to make sure that we maximize protecting the health of the public? So in a new paper you co-authored for JAMA, you discussed three ways that parents can seek a vaccine exemption. In other words, permission from the state not to have their child vaccinated. And first, you mention a medical exemption. Can parents pinpoint a discredited worry to support their case, you know, the link between vaccines and autism, or does the child need to have a well-accepted medical concern? For a medical exemption to vaccination, you generally have to have a clinical diagnosis that shows that you would have an adverse 
reaction to getting the vaccine. So generally, a theoretical concern is not going to be enough to give somebody uh, an exemption for medical reasons. Okay. So so cancer would be one exemption. Cancer um, would be if you're immunocompromised. Okay. Uh, that, would, that would be an exemption if you have an allergy to certain uh, ingredients. Uh, that, that might be an exemption. Okay. Well, the next is a religious concern. Is this simply a, a box that parents check yes, or do parents need to support their religious objection with, say, a discussion or some documentation of their beliefs? It really does depend on the individual state. In many states, uh, it's filling out a form appropriately. And in that form, you would state, I fill your name in here, uh, object based on religious reasons to having these vaccinations. In other states, you may have to go further. There may have to be uh, a letter from uh, someone who is a leader within that religious organization. There may have to be uh, a statement as to the specific beliefs that uh, would prevent you from getting those uh, exemptions. In some states, they may uh, check to see not so much what your beliefs are, but if you're adhering to those beliefs. So some states like New York will look at if you are genuine and sincere in upholding those beliefs. Are you consistent uh, from year to year or child to child with how you are defining religion? Well, some states offer a third type of exemption, which is to allow parents to avoid vaccination for moral or philosophical reasons. How many states allow this? Uh, it's about 17 states now that allow that moral or philosophical grounds. And what we find is that states that do offer that type of an exemption, it's a much broader principle. And so we find that those states tend to have much higher rates of exemptors. As the rates of exemptors continues to increase and we're hitting a critical mass of children in schools that are unvaccinated, these unvaccinated populations tend not to be spread out all the way across the state. They tend to cluster in particular communities, particular schools. And so what we're finding are these pockets of vulnerability to an infectious disease. And so states are now, the last two to three years, have been far more successful in putting new requirements in in order to qualify for those exemptions than expanding. Is it likely that states will begin making it harder now for parents to make a case that their children should not be vaccinated? I think it's going to be a question that's going to be raised in a lot of states. The decision to have exemptions at all is a purely political one. And so I think you're going to see this as a conversation, but we would need public health advocates to be very involved at their local legislatures to try to get those laws changed. So it's going to come up. It's going to be a question that's going to be raised, but you got to be there for the entire sausage making process of the legislative system in order to see it go from this is a concern to we're going to reshape the way the law is structured. Ross Silverman is a professor of health policy and management at Fairbanks School of Public Health, which is part of IUPUI in Indianapolis. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your sound medicine stat is two million. Surgeons have gotten good at taking parts from one person and mixing and matching them in other people. We're like Mr. Potato Heads to their game of operation. 
In a new study, researchers looked at the benefits of solid organ transplants in a recent 25-year period. These are the heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, pancreas, and intestines. They compared about a half million people who received a transplant with a similar-sized group who went on a waiting list but didn't get one. Those who received an organ also got something else, more time. Those organs gave an average of 4.3 years of life to each recipient. Altogether, that added up to more than 2 million, two million? extra years. When you're finished with your organs, you can do like most people and take them all with you. Or a sizable portion of you can stay behind and enjoy more years, or even decades. That was the number 2 million. And I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up, we're going to talk a lot about the brain, how it recovers from injury, and why it sometimes doesn't. We used to just, if a kid got knocked out on the football field, we put smelling salts under their nose. We held up three fingers. If they could say it was three fingers and he was president of the United States, we sent them back out. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. Mixed news on Ebola this week. For the first time in 2015, the World Health Organization reported that after several weeks of the caseload dropping, there's been an uptick of Ebola cases in Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia. Human testing on two potential vaccines continues, but a study on a drug doctors hoped might cure the disease has been stopped, as the drug manufacturer said there weren't enough patients with Ebola to complete that study. The journal Science Translational Medicine reported this week on a new gadget that works with a smartphone to diagnose syphilis and the AIDS virus using a pinprick of blood. The so-called dongle works a lot like a home diabetes test, and when, or if it does come to market, it could make it easier for public health workers to do testing out in the field, away from clinics. The World Health Organization reported this week that lung cancer has now passed breast cancer as the leading cancer killer of women in developed countries around the world. A study released this week says women who started smoking in the 60s and 70s because it was socially acceptable are now paying the price. Here in the U.S., the death rate from lung cancer has leveled off. The American Cancer Society is predicting that as smoking declines around the world, so will the rate of lung cancer. And speaking of smoking or not smoking, the CDC announced this week that people who are exposed to secondhand smoke in the United States has dropped in half over the past decade. Two main reasons, the public smoking bans in 700 cities and 26 states, and the fact that many smokers had adopted voluntary smoke-free rules in their own homes. The air really is clearing. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You are listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. There's real momentum building in the area of concussion research and the best ways to help the brain heal. From the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin comes a study published in Pediatrics. It suggests that the optimum amount of rest time after a concussion is two days. A randomized trial of patients ages 11 to 22 found that those who were prescribed strict rest for five days were more likely to report symptoms ranging from headaches and nausea to irritability and sadness. One explanation that's been suggested 
is that if adolescents are forced to be apart from school and classmates for too long, they start worrying about falling behind. Sound Medicine contributor Lauren Silverman reports on a new academic rehab program designed to help students recover from a concussion at their own pace. Senior Graham Hill is at football practice today, but it took a long time for this defensive end to suit back up after a concussion. For months, he felt sick. His stomach hurt, he was exhausted, and there was a pressure in his skull, like a balloon was being inflated in his head. It's kind of hard to describe. It's like a migraine on steroids. After a few weeks, Graham's body was in good enough shape to return to school, but his brain wasn't. The instructions from the doctor were simple. Immediately it was do absolutely nothing. Basically be brain dead, just sit in a dark room, no electronics, no reading, no loud noises, and just focus on getting your mind better. The concussion meant Graham couldn't hang out with friends, even text them. And he definitely couldn't jump back in school. Graham missed two full weeks of class during his all-important junior year and wasn't back as a full-time student for months. For a college-bound kid, this might sound like a disaster, but it was actually all planned, part of an academic rehab program at Trinity Christian. We used to just, if a kid got knocked out on the football field, we put smelling salts under their nose. We held up three fingers. If they could say it was three fingers and who was president of the United States, we sent them back out. You know, we don't do that kind of thing anymore because we know the brain needs to heal. Janie Hurd created the academic rehab program after she herself had a serious concussion. In the past four years, she's helped 120 students ease back into classes after a brain injury. Our goal is to get them back to where they were academically before the brain injury. And it's different for every one of these kids. Recovering from a concussion, whether it's from a car wreck, a fall, or a football collision, can take months. For a student taking six or seven classes, applying for scholarships, trying to give the brain a rest can be a challenge. But it's crucial. Dr. Joya of Children's National Medical Center says a concussion stretches and strains delicate brain tissue, which affects electrical transmission. When that force is applied, I often say the software system of the brain now is impaired and all of the functions that that software runs, like your thinking and your behavior, your emotion, your sleep, can potentially be impaired as well. While going back to school isn't dangerous, Joya says kids with concussions can have brutal migraines and be drained of energy. Not exactly in a position to learn. So any given school has to be prepared. Teams have to be trained as to how you understand the nature of the injury. They need to know what kind of intervention to put in place. And at this point, both the public and the private school systems are really scrambling to try to get themselves on board. At Trinity Christian, Janie Hurd coordinates with doctors, students, parents, and teachers to make sure a student doesn't fall behind. Teachers know to pare down curriculum, take extra time to tutor, even change exams from written to oral. One of the hardest things? Avoiding technology. Screens of any kind are very difficult for the concussed kid. In our schools, we use screens all the time now. We have overheads, symposiums, smart boards. So our kids know they have to put their heads down in class if a screen is being used when they're recovering from a concussion. If they're light sensitive, they wear sunglasses in the building. Student Graham Hill didn't need to wear sunglasses in school. He did leave classes during videos and listened to an audiobook of Moby Dick instead of reading it. 
He says that wasn't any easier. (laughs) This afternoon, Graham is back in the classroom discussing moral relativity in Bible class. Thanks to three months of easing back into school, fewer quizzes, and tutoring, Graham didn't fall behind. And even though he had to put off taking college placement tests until his brain was healed, he got into Ole Miss. He says it was the mental as well as the physical rest that put him back on the right track. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Lauren Silverman. Lauren Silverman is a health science and technology reporter at KERA Public Media in Dallas. Let's look at another kind of brain trauma now, psychological trauma. Our next guest is a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine and founder of the Trauma Care Center in Brookline, Massachusetts. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk studies how the actual structure of the brain is changed after trauma. Welcome to Sound Medicine. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. In your new book, you talk about how traumatic events shape people's brains and minds. What sort of events rise to the level of the type of trauma you discuss? Getting stuck in a terrifying situation in which you feel that there is nothing you can do to change what's going on. And that ranges from being an, an abused and neglected child who is left with terror and distress to going to war or being trapped in a car accident or being trapped in a violent marital situation. Now, can these events change the physical structure of the brain? They can change neuronal connections and activation in the brain, yeah. They shape the brain, yeah. And, and the way the brain functions? Yes. So our brain is a social organ that is shaped by experience and that is shaped in order to respond to the experience that you're having. And so particularly early on in life, if you're in a constant state of terror, your brain is shaped to be on alert for danger and to try to make those feelings, those terrible feelings go away. And so there's all kind of problems with sensing fear and sensing terror and taking action and so the the brain gets very confused and that leads to problems with excessive anger excessive shutting down and doing things to yourself that make you feel better like taking drugs or taking razor blades to your skin to desperately make yourself feel better as and these things are almost always the result of having a brain that is set to be feel in danger and in fear. Now, and then as you grow up, up and get the more stable brain, then the traumatic event can still cause changes that make you hyper alert to danger and hypo alert to the ordinary pleasures of everyday life. So are you saying then, we are talking about more of a, 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 a child's brain is more malleable than, a, than an adult brain? No, a child brain is virtually non-existent. It, it's being shaped by experience. Uh, so child brain is extremely malleable, yeah. yeah. So what's the actual mechanism by which it changes the brain? How is the brain formed? The brain is formed by feedback from the environment. So if you see things that feel safe, you engage with it, you stay focused on it, and you shape your hearing and your vision and your movement and your attention in order to engage with things around you that give you a mutual sense of pleasure and interaction. 
so our brain is basically a social organ. And so if you're not touched or seen in an orphanage, let's say, whole parts of your brain barely develop, and so you become an adult who is out of it, who cannot connect with other people, who cannot feel a sense of self, a sense of pleasure, because that's all shaped in the context of your relationship with other people. The brain is, is a profoundly relational part of our body. And so, depending on your experiences, your brain gets to feel a sense of pleasure, a sense of engagement, a sense of exploration, the part of your brain open up to learn and to see things and to accumulate new experiences, to form friendships. And But if you run into nothing but danger and fear, your brain gets stuck on protecting yourself against danger and fear. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis, and I'm speaking with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, author of The Body Keeps the Score. You know, we've covered the effect of toxic stress on children on this show, which is major unrelenting stress often caused by adults who should be protecting those children. Does trauma have a very different effect on children compared to adults? Yeah, because of developmental issues. So you have an immature brain. Uh, So in adults, let's say you have, uh, hey, life's been relatively good to you. um, You become competent. You become good at what you're doing. And then something bad happens. And that, that sort of injures a little piece of the whole structure. But if you have toxic stress of abandonment of chronic violence, then it's pervasive and uh, has very very pervasive behavioral effects on the capacity to pay attention, to learn, to see where other people are coming from as opposed to your own wishes. And it really creates havoc with the whole social environment. This is a huge issue. And the Center for Disease Control calculates that child abuse and neglect is our single largest public health issue in, in America. And it leads to criminality and drug addiction and chronic illness and people going to prison and repetition of the trauma on your own kids when you were messed up. And so it's, it's a gigantic issue. Are there effective solutions? Because you would think of yeah. a, a whole childhood full of trauma and neglect would be very, very difficult to overcome. It is difficult to deal with, but not impossible. One thing we can do, which is not all that well explored because there hasn't been much funding for it, is something called neurofeedback or some of these new brain techniques where you can actually help people to rewire this wiring of their brain structures. And that's really sort of the frontier that my lab happens to be working on. And so that's the most extreme one. Putting people into a safe environment and uh, helping them to create a sense of safety inside of themselves. And for that, you can do very simple things like holding, rocking. We just did an NIH-funded study on yoga for chronic PTSD, mainly with people with very bad histories. And we found that yoga was more effective than any medicine that we had studied up to now. It doesn't mean that yoga cures it, but yoga makes a substantial difference in the right direction because it it helps you to create a safe relationship to your body. So is it the poses? Is it the breathing? Is it the focusing on the present? I mean, what is it? It is the breathing. It's uh, becoming safe to feel what you feel. When you're traumatized, you're afraid of what you're feeling because your feeling is always terror, fear, and helplessness. And I think these body-based techniques 
help you to feel what happens in your body and to breathe into it and say, oh, this is what's happening in my body and to not run away from it. So you learn to befriend your internal experience. The infant trauma is feeling agitated and feeling helpless and feeling heartache and feeling gut-wrenching sensations. It's a very physical, sensate experience, being terrified and being helpless. And so techniques that help people to feel safe in their bodies are enormously important components of treatment. One last question, and this is about physical trauma, um, such as an injury from a bad car accident, for example. In your work, do you consider physical trauma in the same way as a psychological trauma? I'm very intrigued with the work of people who work, let's say, doing this yoga or body work with people who have become paralyzed. I have a case in my book of a patient of mine who developed multiple sclerosis who went through Feldenkrais therapy and was able to continue to have a quite a full life despite the fact of the physical limitations. And so that it's possible to help people to continue to function optimally despite the fact that part of their bodies no longer are fully present for them and help them to cope. But, but I think the, what the therapy should focus on is to use whatever capacities that are left to optimally have them be in service of the life of that person so that person doesn't become a chronically ill, bedridden, frozen, and helpless person. Well, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, the author of The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk is a professor of psychiatry at the Boston University School of Medicine and medical director of the Trauma Center in Brookline, Massachusetts. His book is The Body Keeps the Score. Shifting gears now. So you woke up this morning feeling a bit wobbly-legged and you're wondering if you did one too many downward dogs in yoga class. You could be suffering from DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. Sound Medicine's Jill Dittmeyer explains what to do about it in this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. Dr. Holly Lucille is a CrossFit athlete and trainer in West Hollywood, California. I push my intensity all the time. Which often results in DOMS, or delayed onset muscle soreness. It's caused by microscopic tears in muscle fibers that basically release chemical irritants that trigger inflammation. That causes that overall ouchy feeling. And the worst thing about having delayed onset muscle soreness is that it's really difficult to get back in the game. And not being in the game on a regular basis is usually what triggers DOMS. I call them the weekend warriors in a sense. They're like, not do anything throughout the week and then I've got this time and so I'm going to take a really intense hike or I'm going to go out for a seven mile run. 
As a naturopathic physician, Dr. Lucille prescribes anti-inflammatory herbs and medicines to relieve the pain that can flare even from the simplest of tasks. Let's say you have a sore muscle for some reason and you're using your non-dominant hand or non-dominant side for a long time, pulling in groceries, grabbing your big computer bag from the back seat. Dr. Lucille doesn't tell her patients to stop. Yes, go, but go slow. An increase in both intensity and in velocity. And be aware of your daily activities. Changing your gait to not slip on the icy weather, okay? Actually, they can engage muscles, all right? So it's the same sort of thing. These muscles that have not been trained or put pressure against resistance in a long time, you actually can have this soreness because of that. A soreness that should be gone in a few days. Within two to three days, if you just have DOMS or delayed uh, onset muscle soreness, your muscles are going to recover without any other resistance being put on them, all right? But if it continues, that's the point where you really want to take note and that you might have a hotspot or an injury that is developing. And that means a trip to your doctor. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. We're continuing our look at brain issues now with two updates on a more personal level. In a bit, we'll hear from Dr. David Flockhart on how his treatment for brain cancer is progressing. But first, the conclusion of our series of essays from Dr. Larry Kripe. You'll recall from the last two weeks that Dr. Kripe is telling the story of what he learned after his daughter suffered a traumatic brain injury. Millicent Kripe was taking a semester off from Yale two years ago when she fell more than 30 feet and hit her head on a concrete floor. When Dr. Kripe received word of the accident, he drove immediately to the Washington, D.C. hospital where his daughter was still in a coma. Millicent lies quietly in her hospital bed. My wife Mimi and I are next to her in the neurosurgical critical care unit. Mimi is trying to nap while I sit on a wooden folding chair on the other side of the bed. Open your eyes, Millicent, I whisper sharply. Squeeze my hand. I love you. She doesn't respond. I say I love you, but I mean I am sorry. I don't know what will happen or how to help. I do not say it'll be all right. I am discouraged. For several hours after I arrived at the hospital, Millicent had been thrashing in her bed. In the past hour or so, however, the moaning and flailing against the restraints has subsided. Her left arm, which had lain motionless at her side most of the day, has moved once or twice. She appeared to be resting comfortably. Then I was encouraged. 
But the nurse's brisk but kind matter-of-factness has been replaced by a sense of urgency. She asks me, had Millicent really moved her left arm? Had she squeezed my hand? The nurse rubs Millicent's sternum hard with her knuckle. This is no time to be gentle. The nurse knows what I don't know. I will learn later that her concern was Millicent was quiet due to bleeding or swelling in her injured brain. The nurse calls her supervisor and then the physician on duty. They whisper commands to Millicent. Her eyes may have opened. Millicent, I say, look at me. I am not encouraged. Now, Mimi is awake. We wait for someone to return. I begin to think more like the doctor I am. I review what I saw, dismissing the things I may have imagined. She may be no better, and the nurse's long absence suggests she is worse. I am frightened. I struggle to remind myself it is one step at a time. But that is not true. The phrase one step at a time is misleading. It makes it too easy to believe the passage of time is all that matters, that recovery only demands putting in the hours, days, months, or years. Wait long enough and things will be better. I recall the conversation I had with my brother-in-law, Jerry, earlier today while I drove to D.C. from Indianapolis. Remember, he told me as he said goodbye, it's like a knotted string. I didn't understand then what he meant. I understand now, as I sit with my lovely, intelligent, and critically injured daughter, I realize waiting is like holding a clump of knotted string in my hand. The uncertainty of what will happen is crushing. There is a desire to do something, anything. I fight to remain patient, to believe there is nothing else that should be done. I know if I pull on the clump of knotted string too carelessly, a loop may straighten, but another may close on itself and form a new knot, a different knot, an unforeseen knot. I prepare myself for the unexpected, the complications that seemingly come out of nowhere. Then I surrender myself to knowing I cannot prepare. I can only accept that there will be other knots. Almost two years later, Millicent has recovered much of what we feared she had lost. She is back in college. There have been many moments of uncertainty, but she continues to improve. I often catch myself thinking, one step at a time. But that is not true, and it was never true. It is not about what will happen. It is about preparing for whatever happens, and then accepting there is never enough preparation for the unseen not.
And finally this week, we want to bring you another quick update on Dr. David Flockhart. Regular listeners to this program will recall that we aired several conversations with him late last year after he was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiforme, a form of brain cancer. Dr. Flockhart has been a frequent guest on Sound Medicine over the years, explaining issues in his field of pharmacology. After both chemotherapy and radiation, he's in the midst of a 20-day break from treatments. He told me that, not surprisingly, they really took it out of him. But the trick that's always kept me going is two things. One is if I get up and get moving a little bit, then that gets me over this hump. So I've been able to not maintain my energy levels. My stamina is not as great as it was, but I've managed to understand how how far I can go and be firm about when I can't go. Another sound medicine regular is bioethicist Eric Meslin. He's known Dave since they first met while at Georgetown University. Well, they've been kindred spirits ever since a lunch meeting. Where I kid you not, we pulled out a napkin and started to uh, draw some ideas about collaborative programs in pharmacogenetics and ethics. Eric gave Dave a copy of a paper about cancer survival, written by Stephen Jay Gould. Gould was a famous evolutionary biologist at Harvard University, um, a very gifted science communicator, and he wrote this paper called The Median Isn't the Message, uh, and it recounts his own tale of being diagnosed with abdominal mesothelioma and then learning that the median survival in terms of years was a very small number. It was about eight or ten months. And it was a wonderful explanation for a non-statistician like me about what median means. It means 50% of the people will live to that uh, period, eight months or nine months or whatever the number is, but 50% will live longer. So he describes the story of picking himself off the floor at the Harvard Medical School Library when he learned about this wretched disease, but that there was a sense of optimism in what are the chances of me being in the 50% that might live more than eight months, perhaps 10, 12, 15, or, or 20 months. And I found it an interesting paper just to learn about statistics, and Gould was one of my heroes, one of my idols. And I wanted to share one of my favorite authors with him. It was almost like a mini book club. Everybody thinks that the middle statistic is the statistic. Mm -hmm. It's the one that matters. You're going to live two weeks. You're going to live 10 years. That's the number I'm going to live. That's the number that psychologically gets into a patient's head. But what is really hard to understand sometimes is that there's a high percentage of people who live a very short time, you know, and that's surprising when it happens and scary. And there's a high percentage of people who also live a long time. But in the middle, we call it the middle statistic. So, for example, in this disease, the disease that I have, glioblastoma multiforme, there are people out there who live 14 years. That's really different from someone who's going to live... Uh, 12, 14 months, which is the middle. It's also different from the short one as well. It really gives one a perspective on the need to think about it day to day rather than be waiting for 14 months to come and then here I am, I'm ready to go. <laughs> it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I think for patients, that's a tremendously important thing because there are things you can do that put you on the longer side of the spectrum than the other. 
Doctors Flockart and Meslin have taken their collaboration on the road, doing a medical grand rounds in Florida on the issue of evidence-based medicine. One of the things that I have found useful is uh, really understanding the evidence. When it looks like there's no evidence, okay, go back and look and look and look and look and look, and then really look to see if there was evidence that you had missed in your early literature searches. And when you don't have evidence, one is very uh, prone to bias. As part of his research into his type of brain cancer, Dave Lockhart turned up an unexpected bit of family history. My mother had had the same disease, down to the same histology. So this was very, very, very interesting to me. And we embarked on a family exercise to collect everybody's DNA, about 12 of us, I think, to have it all analyzed and see who's got it. And we haven't got through all that yet. But it really stimulated a, a new thing just because I started thinking about it. And I could talk about it a lot more specifically in relation to our family, but this is not thought of as a genetic disease. The lifetime risk for brain cancer is 0.6%. Lung and breast cancers pose considerably higher risks. So to have three people in the same family seemed pretty remarkable to us, and that set off a whole new thing that I certainly had not anticipated uh, beforehand, but the minute you bring genetics up, you know, you're back with really interesting questions. If you had it, would you want to know? Even already within the family, there's the question of, if I had it, would I really want to know? And you have three children. Yep. Have you broached the subject? Are they getting tested? Or? They've been. They've been tested. Okay. So, uh, sorry, we have the DNA. Okay. We haven't got the Results. data yet. Okay. Right, right. So a little. So now they're going to have to decide. In the story here. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And 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 have they decided whether? No. No. But at this point, there's no genetic marker for the cancer that David Flockhart has. So the plan is to take those DNA samples from his family members and analyze them, looking for possible patterns. So this is where bioethics and genetics meet, not in the theoretical classroom, (laughs) but right smack in the middle of of a family. That's right. I mean, there's information, there's, there's, you know, a little piece of, of material sitting in a laboratory that the answer's already there. It's just whether you want to open the envelope and find out. Does this help? I mean, in terms of when you're living with cancer and you're living with uncertainty. I mean, that ability to say, hey, we can discover things. I mean, I'm not talking about whether your children or not want to to Mm -hmm. find this, but the act of science, the act of moving science forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's hugely important, at least to me. Part of what I want to do is bring more rationality to the public discussion of cancer and to the discussion of science in in general. But the whole raison d'etre for the discussion, if you like, is partly because I approach it with a sense of wonderment and a sense of uh, wow and a sense of uh, isn't that interesting. And that's just as potent a motivation for me. It's more potent, actually, as it might be to to sit there and wonder uh, why the sky is blue or why this happened to me this way or but you've always uh, been like that i'm you, just you, weird you think you've always <laughs> been interested in in science with that sense of wonder i don't think anybody can especially in the fields that you've been working in this intersection of mm. genetics and pharmacology and why is it this way and the most fun thing is when you get an unexpected result out of that
That's Dr. David Flockhart of the IU School of Medicine, along with his friend and colleague, Dr. Eric Meslin. We'll keep you posted. And that's it for this week's program. You can post comments about what you heard today on Facebook or submit suggestions for future shows on our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our free podcast so you can listen anytime that's convenient to you. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf prepares our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program. Andy chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News with help from Andrea Moraskin. And our executive producer is Eric Eggleton. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.